Hi, everyone, and welcome to Andy Gorman Golf One Putt Podcast. It's our first edition, and I want to give you a warm welcome. I also want to introduce to you uh, myself, Andy Gorman, uh, putting and short game specialist, and also my wingman for the day. It is Gareth Shaw, good friend, PGA professional, agent, and media specialist. Um, Gareth, welcome. Hi, Andy. How are you? Very well, thanks, Gareth. It's uh, you know it's been a long time coming. Um, it's been you know a long, a lot of fun along the way. We've done quite a lot of media uh, so far, but podcast is um, you know we've talked about it for a little while, and uh, you know you've been instrumental in encouraging me as as well as a few of my friends uh, elsewhere in the golf industry uh, who've invited me onto their podcasts. Um, so I thought I'd get you this morning as the first one i need a little bit of help um always need a little bit of help but uh i know that you're the uh the orator um you know behind a lot of the things that we do from the social media platform at andy gorman golf and uh you know i'm more than happy to hand over the reins to you for a little while answer as many questions as uh you've got for me and um you know let's share a little bit about what uh, andy gorman golf is about and what we're doing for uh, golf golfers and uh, for the future of the game hopefully yeah definitely. to be honest Andy where I want to start is we've we've done a lot of, of podcasts over the kind of lockdown period which has been great with with Seymour on the couch and with the guys at driving range heroes um I wanted to go a little bit deeper this morning if that's what all right with you I wanted to kind of take you back to to your early golfing days um, and if you want to tell the the audience and the listeners of how you started in the game, your kind of golfing journey, and then kind of people who influenced your game along the way. Yeah, that'd be great. I mean, I'm not sure how long our listeners have got, but, you know, if they've got a long journey mm-hmm. travel, then, uh, you know, I've got a lot a lot to get in. But, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I'm very fortunate. 51 now, I've been playing golf for 43 years, which is kind of a, uh, yeah, a bit of a scary thought, really. It's longer than... I've been playing golf longer than you've been breathing, which is that's an interesting thought, isn't it? No <laughs> longer than you have as well. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, you know, golf golf for me was part of part of life. You know, as a kid growing up, and something that I was really, you know, sport was 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 the thing. You know, sport was big in the house. Uh, you know, dad was a sportsman. He you know he played semi professional, works football you know, as it was back in the day. And, you know, he was keen for me to get into football. And I love football. You know, I, you know, as a kid growing up, I thought, couldn't think of anything better to actually sport with dad. You know, I mean, it was was amazing. And, you know, dad was a good footballer and um, a, an old-fashioned wing-back, you know, which, you know, kind of, you know, I, I fitted into that. You know, dad taught me to kick with two feet, which I think is, is absolutely imperative as a footballer. But, you know, we're not here to talk about football. We can do lots of Mm-hmm. football but um um you know but it, you know from a golfing point of view it, you know dad got into golf and got his membership at um drayton park which is just a few minutes away from the belfry um scene of many a um triumphant and tribulant rider cup you know i mean it was great from both sides i think you know the belfry was pivotal into the new era of of the rider cup and i was fortunate to start my so the golfing career, uh, you know, at the Belfry. So that was that was tremendous. But you know, the kid growing up, you know, I learned my craft really, and you know, with Dad on the golf course, and 
you know, dad wasn't a great golfer, you know, when I got into it, but then he became, you know, quite an accomplished golfer. I think if I remember rightly, he got about 11 or 12 was his handicap. Um, you know, by the, by the time he had to hang the, the clubs up and, you know, it was, um, it, you know, we journeyed together along that line, you know, he caddied for me in competitions and I think he got a bigger kick out of that, um, than he did out of, um, you know, so the playing golf, you know, he loved playing golf, but, you know, he really loved the fact that he got a, got a chance to get out and watch me, you know, sort of right on the bag itself. You know, he had to carry the bag. We had to have a tour bag. You know, it was dad that, you know, sort of encouraged me to have a bigger bag, you know, because it felt like he was doing a better job if he carried a bigger bag around. It was quite funny, really. When I look, <laughs> you know, not content to carry, the, you know, the little bag. It was... Um, you know, that's for you. You carry that. You know, I want the big bag. And, you know, and obviously, you know, tour bags, staff bags, we know what they are. They're designed to get both caddies' equipment as well as um, players' equipment in. And, you know, he he just relished it. You know, I mean, I, Dad wasn't the tallest fellow in the world. And we used to joke at some events um, about the fact that when he started caddying, he was six foot tall. And, he, you know, after a few years of caddying, he ended up at five foot four. But, you know, it, um, but yeah, you know, those are, those are the fond memories, you know, we had, you know, I've, I've got lots of fond memories of dad, but you know, he, we, it wasn't all great on the golf course, you know, I didn't play well all the time and, you know, but we had a lot of time on the golf course together and, you know, dad's no longer with us, but, you know, I, I talked about him, you know, at his funeral and, you know, I won't remember one of the things that I said, you know, and, and it stands out today, you know. I read Jack Nicholas's books as a kid growing up and, you know, Jack Nicholas said, you know, you teach a child to hit the golf ball hard and a long way and you know, will get fed up and looking for it soon enough and learn how to hit it straight. And I remember saying this to dad after jumping off my feet one shot and hit it into the trees and I, t I quoted Jack Nicholas and he said, I don't care. He said, I'm fed up and looking. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't hit it straight straight away you know it took me a few more years to do it but um yeah we had great times on the golf course he, he was on the bag when i won club championship and uh, you know as an 18 year old but i won the club match play at 14 and you know we we just had great time together but he was quite influential not just you know sort of on the bag you know he, he had a calming effect on the bag he also had a firing effect on the bag if he felt that i was a bit sort of laid back he'd you know, he put some fire in my belly. He had a way of getting me inspired, you know, and, that, you know, that's what a good caddy does. Um, you know, we had some painful times on the golf course because he witnessed, you know, my putting challenges in 94 and actually was the last time he caddied for me. Um, he, you know, so we, we had some, you know, really good, really high moments on the golf course. And, you know, he, he saw me, you know, struggling with my game, but, uh, the lasting impression I have really is stats. You know, dad was, you know, back in the seventies, you know, as I was getting into the game as a, as a youngster, dad would come home from playing golf in a competition and well, every round, I mean, it didn't matter whether it was competition or whatever, he'd chart whether he'd hit a fairway, he'd hit a green, how many times he got up and down, how many bunker saves, how many putts, you know, and he, you know, he just did that religiously after every single round and I would go through it with him. And I never thought twice about doing it when I started playing. You know, I would get in, I would, you know, get that pen and paper out and, and chart it. You know, I mean, I can remember years, 
you know, 14 to 16, you know, how many greens I was hitting in regulation, T-shot, you know, fairways, greens, putts. I remember those now. Um, you know, I remember I was averaging 24.3 putts around. Now, to put that into context, I was also only hitting six greens in regulation. So most of my handicap got into single figures. It was clear to see that my short game was the reason why, you know, I was having fewer putts. But, you know, it was also blindsided that, you know, maybe I wasn't as good a putter as I thought I was. And looking back now, I can't remember holding lots of long putts. But, you know, I certainly had lots of short putts to knock in. I can't remember missing many either. So, you know, it was a case of, you know, I had a very solid putting statistics. Um, but I didn't hit many fairways and I didn't hit many greens. But that's something now I try and encourage my, you know, my players you know, whatever level they are and however old or young they may be, you know, understand your stats because they're, you know, with all of those stats and you can go into a lot more detail, you know, dad used to chart whether he missed the fairway left or right, um, invariably left as it happened. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that's where I learned it from. But, um, it, you know, we would, we would chart left and right misses. We would chart, you know, sort of where we'd miss the greens. So we were going getting a little bit more detail. We worked out very quickly, you know, as a youngster that I was under clubbing into the greens, you know, and so, you know, on a lot of the holes, you could actually afford to be past the flag, um, you know, or past the green. So, you know, we started hitting more clubbing to the greens and, and because of that then started to lower the scores because instead of being in the front bunker, I was further up the green. If I, you know, I'd missed the sh miss hit the shot, I'd actually got it on the green. So there was a lot of things that, you know, dad's simplified version of stat collecting. And I don't even know where he got that from. Um, and I don't know how many <laughs> tour players were doing that type of thing. And I certainly don't think there were anybody out on the golf course collecting that data for, uh, for folk, you know. So, so that's been very influential for me. Um, you know, as a, as a kid growing up, dad was very much the number one influencer, you know. But of course, that moves on as well. And, you know, that's... Um, you know, in statistics from my point of view now, you know, I generally as a putting a short game coach want to know how many greens have been hit, you know, whether or not fairways have been hit. Yes, that's fine. It's not an area that I'm going to try and fix, but I can point a client in the right direction if that's a problem. But more importantly, I want to see how many putts and how long the putts are that you're holding, you know, and, and once we've gotten those two important bits of data around putting, we've got a real good picture as to how good somebody is or how much they're improving you know so yeah very much a significant influence was dad in those first years and obviously subsequently still now you know even though he doesn't realize it so with that in mind what kind of players were influencing your either philosophy approach to your game at that time um you know i love my homegrown players you know i was was always admiring of of the players around me. Jacqueline was was a big thing for um, obviously Tony Jacqueline with Dad and you know the British winner of the Open and the US Open around the time that I was born and you know I remember watching him having his struggles towards the end of his career. You know, like I came to you know my observations of golf. You know, came in obviously you know later later seventies. I have very very 
little recollection of of Seve winning the Open in nineteen uh, in seventy nine, but I do I do have recollection of that. So that was on the Open Championship was always on the Masters was always on, and of course Seve, you know, sort of reared his head, and you know, it was I could I was inspired by his charisma, his flamboyancy on the golf course, his ability to get out of trees. Well, you know, I felt like I modelled my game on him. Um, <laughs> that wasn't necessarily an intent, of course, but I definitely felt like, you know, there was a, there was a model going on, um, you know, and if I had, to, if Seve could hit it in the trees and I could hit it in the trees and Seve could get it out of the trees, then I could get it out of the trees. And I, I looked for all the smallest of gaps and of course oftentimes didn't find them. Um, but was inspired to look at different ways to get out of trouble. And of course, more importantly, once I did get it into an area where the wedge could do the work, then ultimately, you know, I had to look at how did Sebi get it up and down, you know, and, and that was it for me. You know, it was, you know, Greg Norman and Faldo and Lyle and Woozy, you know, they were sort of forming their careers at the time. But, you know, Lango, you know, Europe was, was fantastic. We had lots of tournaments to watch on, you know, domestic television. Um you know, it almost seemed like every weekend we had something to watch. But ultimately, you know, Seve was that that one person that I sort of, you know, admired as a youngster. And then, of course, the Belfry hosting tournaments just on the doorstep, you know, I became Seve's shadow, you know. Um, mm-hmm. You know, whenever there was a tournament on, practice days, Dad would drop me, you know, it was towards the, the right time of the year you know, where school had finished invariably. And, you know, dad would drop me off on his way to work and and not necessarily pick me up on his way home. He would come up and watch himself. And Seve was always there with the Spaniards, you know, I mean, just watching him compete, you know, around the short game area, around the putting green and and just watched him. And, you know, there were no picket fences back then. You know, it was, you know, you could get really close to, to the players and, you know, Sefi was very receptive to youngsters. I think he was pretty much all the way through his career. Um, rightfully, the tour changed its policies and stopped you getting right on top of the players. But, you know, I was fortunate to be around when that wasn't the case. And it was just watched and, you know, occasional words. You know, he would acknowledge me. And, you know, just to be able to, to sort of get that close to him um, before the Ryder Cup, before I was a staff player, staff member at the uh, at the Belfry itself was just incredible and you know something that I'll cherish and something that I use today because you know he showed me techniques you know and and explained why he did certain things showed me how to get out of a bunker with a three iron I mean <laughs> yeah, I still marvel at it now um, yeah. how do you get the golf ball up over a lip with a three iron you know he showed me and you know I can do it but you know, it was like it's something I'd only ever heard of before. And, you know, to see it firsthand as a 12, 13, 14 year old kid was incredible. Um, and something that I aspired to, you know, the whole time. So, yeah, Seve was was just incredible. And, you know, maybe maybe on another podcast, I'll share a couple of stories we had. That'd be cool. No, really good. From, from that um, point then, Andy. How did you transition into coaching? So from from kind of playing career into coaching. Um, you know, for me, I, look, I wanted to be like any other kid. I wanted to be, 
you know, one of the best players in the world. Um, but actually, looking back now, I didn't. You know, I I thought the journey to being a good golfer was just hitting golf balls, playing golf, having fun, not realizing necessarily, you know, how much hard work the best players, the tour players, even the guys that don't make it on tour, how much hard work these guys actually put into it. Um, I wouldn't say that I was lazy. I just short-sighted myself. I didn't have necessarily the mentoring, um, you know, that I had encouragement. Don't get me wrong. You know, my, my local pro, uh, Mike Passmore, would always encourage me. Oh, go on, go and get yourself on the practice ground. You know, if I was loitering around the clubhouse without, you know, waiting for a round of golf, or, you know, I'm playing in half an hour, we'll go and hit some chips then, or go and hit some putts. You know, so I had encouragement, but I didn't necessarily have the mentoring. Um, so I didn't make it as a player. Um, you know, I didn't hit the golf ball straight enough. You know, I didn't hit the golf ball as well as Seve did. Um, you know, so there were a lot of reasons why I didn't. You know, I'm sh not short of the financial reason either. You know, I mean, it was it still is very expensive to both get on the tour and to do it. And you know, we weren't in that position, but. Um, you know, I remember in you know the Ryder Cup in 1985. I met Carson Solheim, and you know he he leant forward and you know said how how long you know what are your aspirations, son? And I said I'd love to play in the Ryder Cup one day. And he said, well, you won't get to play in the Ryder Cup selling golf balls behind the counter of a pro shop. You know, and and that was the reality. I was 16 years of age, and that was the reality. I mm -hmm. needed to work. And actually, then I realized that I, I wasn't necessarily, you know, there was no way that I was going to afford, you know, we weren't privileged enough to do that. We we did need, you know, incomes from, from multiple streams, you know, in the household. And that's not judging anybody. You, you know, that's just, you know, how my life cards fell. But I also realized very quickly that, you know, what I didn't want it enough. Um, I became a better golfer. I became... You know, more accomplished at, at hitting golf balls, but I also asked lots of questions. And I realized that by asking lots of questions, I gained lots of answers. And so that kind of led me, you know, down the professional coaching path. You know, I, I got out of golf for a li little while and very quickly realized that, you know, I needed to turn pro. I needed to, you know, tackle the domestic side of the game, you know, and become as good a golfer as I could whilst, really understanding that you know what i could earn money as a coach i could help people i was helping people um you know as a junior you know as a young young man you know i had you know a, a sort of a, a, a want and desire to help people and you know to get the folk to you know if i sit, felt that i could see an improvement for somebody i wanted to share that you know of course folk are not always willing to receive that but if they are willing then you know i had advice that I could share and, you know, I was very fortunate to get into the coaching, you know, side of things very quickly. You know, I worked for John Ray in Coventry and John was very much of the mindset that, you know, you got out there and you worked, you worked in the shop, you did your things that you had to do. If you PGA training, I did my training, I got through my exams, but he very much from day one encouraged me to teach. And the reason for that was, you know, it meant that I think, you know, from a cheeky point of view, I would say that um, it meant that John didn't have to give us bonuses and pay us any more money, that we had to go out there and earn it ourselves. And that was a really good platform. Um, you know, if John ever got to listen to this, he'd have a smile at that. You know, the other thing you said is if mm -hmm. you're at work, you're not spending any money. So you put more money in the bank and you keep it there. That was you know, very much what.
is as well. He said, and don't get married because then you go to work and then your wife will be spending your money. So um, how true. Um, (laughs) Definitely not the case, um, you know, now. So, you know, from a point of view of, of, um, you know, coaching for me is something that I didn't ever have to endure. I got into coaching in uh, 1990 when I turned pro and I never had to endure it. It was just a, a part of my day that I couldn't wait to do. So even if I had worked eight or 10 hours in the shop, to do two or three hours more coaching was just, couldn't wait. And, you know, not just because I was earning extra money, it was because I could see I was helping people and they were smiling when they left me, you know, and I knew very little about coaching and I'm sure I messed a few people up. But, you know, as I learned my trade, you know, as a coach, um, I I enjoyed it more. And, And today, you know, I've said this a few times on some of the podcasts, you know, I don't go to work to earn a living. You know, I am utterly blessed to have a, a vocation that pays me to be able to, to live, you know, nicely. And, you know, I don't have to go to work for a living. You know, I, I go to work, I go out of the house in the day. You know, we all talk about it going to work, but I don't work. You know, I mean, I work really, really hard in the context of the coaching and what I do to help players achieve, but it's not work in the context that everybody else who's going out there, maybe making cars or stacking shelves or serving people. And, you know, you know, I, people want to be with me. They pay me good money to be with me, to share my knowledge, to help them improve. And I see that happen every single day. And, you know, I can't think of a better way to make a living, to be honest with you. And it is an absolute privilege. That's really good. Amazing. How did you make that transition, Andy, then from um, kind of full swing of coaching into putting in short game? What was the kind of thoughts and decisions around that? It's interesting. Um, you know, it's a, it's a really good question. And I look back at times and think, you know, crikey, but why didn't I do it earlier? Um, you know, it was very simple. I brought a consultant into my business, um, you know, a little bit like bringing you, you know, and mediating. Um you know, there are always people out there that are better at doing something than you are. And, you know, for me as a coach, it was always a case of, you know, every day is a school day, especially for the coach. I'm always willing to learn. And, you know, as I felt that I, you know, and I, look, you know, when players succeed and players have their handicaps and, you know, we set goals and you see that happening and you see a player improving the ball striking and they you know, lower the scores on the course and they have more fun, then you realise you're doing a good job. You know, as a swing coach, you know, it was almost a given that that was happening. You know, you could see swings improve. We had the advent of video cameras, you know, and being able to show people the differences and they could not just feel the difference and watch the ball fly better, but actually see the difference and feel like they were accomplishing something. But actually... you know, but I was, I um, had more and more knowledge over putting as I, you know, overcame my own problems. And I felt that my own problems for me, I mean, I love swing coaching. I, I really did. And, you know, to some degree, I still do today when I, you know, I have a few players that still work with me. But ultimately, um, you know, I struggled with putting. 94, the last day, the last time that Dad Gaddy for me, I suffered with the yips. 
and you know things started to twitch and break down and you know i would stand over a four foot putt during that particular tournament you know three four five foot putts not knowing which side of the hole i was going to miss it on you, you know and you know dad in his infinite wisdom would say you know just choose one side of the hole you know which was, was definitely not the right way to go about things but in hindsight instead of knocking it three foot past and missing the return in the attempt to hold it, had I just nudged the ball to the side of the hole, I'd have won the tournament by about six or seven shots. You know, I mean, that's just been, you know, sort of realistic. If I'd have hold the putts at the rate I do today, I'd have won by about 15, you know, 18 shots. I mean, that's just the, I had 10 three putts inside 10 feet um, and shot one over par, finished second in the event. And hit 33 greens in regulation. I actually hold quite a few putts that day as well, which is more bizarre but but mostly from outside of the 10 foot mark and you know the numbers don't sort of make any sense when you have nine birdies and 10 bogeys that makes sense you know but when you look at it it was all concentrated in that short area and i sought the advice of some of the best coaches around you know that i could actually talk to and you know read all the books and you know, we didn't have YouTube back then. You know, we're talking about the 90s. You know, the internet was just in its formative stage. We didn't have the video access. Of course, we had videos themselves and, you know, then latterly DVDs and, you know, anything to do with putting I got a hold of. But I couldn't find the answer. The answers always seemed to be the same things, you know. And I'll say this now on the podcast. The, you know, the PGA training manual taught me how to yip. I didn't yip when I was a kid and I didn't miss short putts. You know, I knocked them all in. Um, you know, I would have never gotten to a position where I had a one handicap if I couldn't have knocked the short putts in. You know, it was as simple as that. You know, my wedge player, my wedge, uh, my putts got me down to one, which gave me the opportunity to turn pro. It wasn't my long game. So I felt like I was a little bit kidding myself by teaching swing, um, you know, when the best part of my game was always short game and putting. But I was struggling with putting, so that blindsided me. And then I went back and I did a lot more research. You know, I got totally frustrated, although, you know, elements are fixed and I had some great successes and, you know, I won an inter international tournaments as well. Um, but ultimately, I felt that putting was the weakness that I needed to learn more. And once I started to learn more, I realized that it was no longer a weakness as a coach or as a player. And then folks started to ask questions about it. And I just ended up coaching more and more putting. I became more mm -hmm. accomplished and then more eureka moments happened and, you know, more consultancy took place with manufacturers of training products, et cetera. You know, I did more coaching. And as you do more coaching, you find more answers. And if you find more answers, you, you know, have more eureka moments. And it's just like, oh, wow, we've cracked it. Yeah, And, you know, and I mean that in the true sense the formula in effect or the, or the system, you know, was what did I do when I was a kid? I was instinctive. What did I do? You know, you know, as a, as a player, you know, I, I learned how to get out of trouble it, and, you know, so I applied all of those principles to come out the other side of my own putting yips. And, you know, since 2004, you know, the putters moved smoothly back and forward since you know so the 2012 i would say the system that i teach today is all about being natural and instinctive and creative 
and let the sort of natural juices flow and you know let the you know the player become um as childlike as possible on the greens whilst understanding that we have to understand you know fundamentals so you know of course we have to recognize that you know eyes over the ball is not a fundamental that helps you with your putting does seems like a good idea at the time but actually is heavily flawed and you know we'll talk about myths in you know in in forthcoming podcasts but you know i was desperate to to sort of share the moments of knowledge that i gained and the the coming out the other side and and putter fitting and and why 34 inch putters don't fit everybody and you know and, and why you know manufacturers are so belligerent in the fact that you know if we you either have a 33, 34, or 35, yet, you know, we're making every other detail so specific in all the long clubs, but in putters and even wedges, you know, we're not building the clubs to spec to suit the individual. You know, so I got really passionate about, you know, understanding those elements. And the more I got to understand, the more I wanted to share, and the more I share, will improve. And you know, it just became a, a snowball effect. And, you know, I... I looked at my business but wasn't sure what I should do and you know I, I met a fellow called Graham Webb introduced by good friend Sam Carr from the PGA and you know Graham said look if you don't specialize your business you'll never be recognized for what you know and that was that was it and in fact Graham just wanted me to be a putting coach he said that you know he looked at my business specifically and he said, you know, you make a great putting coach. You've got the facilities. You can roll it out, um, you know, but just just do that. Focus on that. And I said, I can't let the short game go. You know, and we identified the fact that the UK doesn't have a putting and short game specialist. And so, you know, he said, you've got all the skills there. You are a putting and short game specialist. You're a putting specialist. You're a short game specialist you're the putting and short game specialist in the UK because there are short game specialists, there are putting specialists, but there's nobody mixing the two. So you can build programs around that. And, you know, that was, you know, all I needed to hear literally within seven days, I'd contacted all of my clients and said, if you want to come with me on the journey, I'll continue to teach you swing. But from that moment on, I didn't um, take on any new clients for swing coaching and, you know, so that that was basic. That was the basic journey. You know, I mean, sort of you know, short answer. You know, as long as possible. But you know, it's it, you know very simply. Really, it was a case of you know drop the swing coach, and I now have just a handful of swing clients who've been with me for you know over fifteen years, all of them now. And um, you know that that's a, a privilege. It keeps my hand in. You know, but at the same time, for me, it's not a case of. Um, uh, you know, sort of, I'm, I'm not there to, to sort of fix swings. There are, you know, thousands of very good swing coaches. The PGA trains professional golfers or young professional golf professionals very well in swing coaching, but do not do the job of training putting and short game coaches. And for me now, I feel that, you know, if the PGA is not going to do it, then, you know, it comes down to those of us that are specialists in our field to do it and to bring a nurture and a mentor pros uh, who are willing to or want to learn more about the putting and short game and to, you know, bring them through the ranks of understanding what we call the one putt 
program, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to become part of the one part academy series, and and ultimately, um, you, you know, not only make a difference for everybody else, but also make a difference for their own game because you know, or, nobody goes out there and holds every single putt. There's always room for improvement, and for me, the, I think the biggest passion that I have is that I want everybody to understand whether you're a 20 handicap golfer, a complete beginner, a scratch golfer, or anybody in between, you can put better than any tour player you see on TV. The only reason why they put as well as they do is because they practice for two or three hours a day, because it's their job. But you do not need to practice for two or three hours a day if you understand the fundamentals of putting and how the body and the brain can, can communicate well with the putter and the ball and the green surface, and you can learn every facet of putting and become a great putter. And I, uh, you know, it's on record, you know, we're going out there live with this. The best players in the world are not the best putters. Their methods mm-hmm. are flawed, their equipment doesn't fit them, um, but they make as good a job as they can. And that's not a sweeping statement per se, it's, you know, because some guys are well-fitted, um, you know, either they've stumbled across it or they've, you know, found a way or, you know, they happen to fall into the realms of, of what, you know, the standardised equipment is. But, you know, if you get a putter correctly fitted, you get the right length, the right lie, the right looks to suit your eye and, you know, then the right loft once you've learned to deliver the club consistently um, with a little bit of practice, and not necessarily every single day, but if you can every single day, just 10 or 15 minutes, you can learn to be a great putter. And you don't have to be an athlete. That's the beauty of it. You don't have to swing the club at 140 mile an hour, you know, to compete with Bryson. You know, you, you literally just have to be able to move the putter from side to side at a couple of mile an hour with a degree of control that will deliver the ball on the line you choose. And at a speed relative, of course. But... You know, I, I'm passionate. Everybody can learn to do that. And, you know, we can transcend that into short game as well. And, you know, I see so many challenges on short game that are so easy to fix relatively. The challenge for me is that, you know, invariably I'm, you know, when a client comes to me or they seek me out, it's gotten real bad. So we've got a lot of baggage to get rid of as well. So, you know, it's not necessarily a five minute fix. It's easy to fix, but it's not a five-minute fix to eradicate the old habits either. So, you know, that that's a challenge as a coach because I want to get that message across. But, you know, for me, the big deal really is that we get everybody who's not an athlete, who doesn't play golf for a living, can have a really, really good short game, you know, and become a great putter. And that is absolutely – there are no exceptions. And I'm really passionate to get that message across to golfers, to coaches that they can learn how to teach that, um, you know, that's part of what the one put program is all about. You know, just you know, go get coaches in there to understand it, get golfers in there to, to realise that you know they can be great around the greens and enjoy golf so much more, you know, and, and make a difference. And that's really you know the future element of of Andy Gorman Golf is to make the difference we can. And you know, if the, the governing bodies are not going to take the coaching on board. You know, then that's a shame because all the pros are not going to benefit. But if the, those that are passionate about short game like I am, you know, they can benefit. You know, one putt's not just about putting. One putt's all about understanding how you get the ball into a position on the course to give yourself the best opportunity to make one putt when you get on the green. If, of course, you've missed the chip. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. 
<laughs> One of the other sections we're going to kind of bring into the into the podcast is around what's happened and what's topical over the the weekend golf. So this weekend at the Travellers, when Dustin Johnson uh, won again, um, I think that's thirteen seasons on the bounce. He's done that a, a one win in the season, which has been great. Something I noticed and I picked up through the media channels that he's had three putters in his bag over the last three weeks. What's your thoughts on that, Andy? And what does that tell you about him as a putter? And just a little bit of a tour insight of what you saw out there on tour with players changing equipment. Um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, the tour side of things, um, you know, if I can crack that nut straight away, really, there are a number of, a little bit like the journeyman pro who plays in everything, you know, and, and just about scrambles enough money for their card to retain the card for the following season. They work really hard, you know, but they're, you know, they're either not quite good enough, you know, but they they hang on by their fingernails and, and their eyelashes at the end of every season. But they are good enough, you know, they just haven't realised or they may, maybe it is a self-belief. And they'll try and find something. We're always looking for one percent. You know, as a coach, we're looking to make a make our clients that little bit better. And if we can improve every facet of the game, obviously, you know, for me, it's largely inside a hundred yards. Um, you know, with with my clients, but that's sixty percent of the game. So you know, quite you know, plus you know, maybe seventy percent in some cases. But you know, it's it's a um, if we can find those very small incremental percentages. But without the real knowledge, you know, and this I think is the big deal, without the real knowledge of what it is that, you know, that it takes to settle with a with a piece of equipment. Many times these guys are not switching drivers and irons and wedges and hybrids around. They, they're pretty set in their bag. You know, they may be looking for something a little bit off the teeth. That's a weakness. But, you know, invariably we switch putters because we're weak, we're weak in that area or mm -hmm. perceived to be weak in that area. I think one of the dangers is that a perception of weakness is um, is challenged by the manufacturers. You know, we've got a new product out. You know, they drip feed the, the new products, so they may have you know ten new products coming out, and over the next five weeks, we'll see two or three different putters coming out onto the putting green. Um, you know, and each manufacturer is going to do that differently. So, you know, some may have, a, you know, their whole year's series, you know, stays in the truck and nobody sees it unless you have the privilege of going on the truck. But, um, you know, those that bring, were bringing them out onto the putting green, you know, we, we don't want to give too much choice to the players was, was ultimately, you know, the, the, the sort of strap line. Um, but ultimately, you know, a player will try something and, and of course, the reps will know you know what they what the player likes. So if they're blade players, they'll they'll not introduce them to the mallet unless there's something significant about the mallet design, and they'll just give it to them. And you know you'll see a player pick it up, have a couple of waggles with it, probably not even hit a putt, you know, and and then put it back down on the back. But there are there are always a handful of players that will switch and swap looking for that magic ingredient, and and you know it would appear that Dustin is one of those. Um, it's certainly, you know, from a visual point of view, of course, you know, I'm critical about whoever miss, whoever's missing a putt. Suppose I can be criti a critic of anybody's method that, you know, even holds putts, you know, the, he's hold the putt in spite of, you know, is something that I think all coaches will, 
if they don't admit to that, then you know they're selling themselves short as a critic. Um, but the difference between a critic and being critical is that you're, you know, nitpicking and trying to pull things apart without you know even the reason to do so. You know, I think the safest way to say is he's a great putter, but I wouldn't teach that principle to anybody else. He's learned how to do it, but you know, or, or her, of course. But you know, when it comes down to it, the putter for me is just the t is just a tool, but it is also part of the the tools. You know, and so you've got to be comfortable with it. A player invariably is encouraged to use a putter that fits a stroke pattern and it couldn't be further from the truth. The person in control of the club is the person holding this or the, the part of the club. The club doesn't control the stroke. So a certain putter type doesn't fit a certain stroke. The player works with that. Now you need to understand how you control the club, which I think is a, a, a challenge that we, we have in terms of marketing putters for sale. And, you know, again, I think another podcast, but, you know, for for Dustin, he clearly wasn't comfortable with his first putter out. He clearly wasn't comfortable with his second putter out. Be interesting mm -hmm. to see if he's playing this week. I'm not sure if he is. Um, if he brings the same putter out this week, invariably a player would, but that's not always the case. Sometimes it just doesn't happen like that. Um, but you'd expect it to, given the fact that obviously he had a putter in the bag that one happened to be part of the winning bag. But again, it's a mindset more than anything else. And it's a challenge, you know, it's a challenge as a coach because you see a player completely comfortable and settled in in visual you know, form. And for me, that's making sure that the putter fits. And they go out and have a great tournament, like say may win. And then the next week they're testing something else. And I think sometimes that's a little bit of the manufacturer's, you know, recognising that that player is fickle enough to try something new. And, you know, they throw them off the scent, you know, they, they may well have found the formula and they switch the formula quickly. Um, you know, and that's, that's an opinion, you know, I'm sure they would argue against that, but, you know, I, I've, you know, firsthand I've seen that, you know, that the, the targets for the new putter are the ones that, you know, irrespective of the result the previous week, um, you know, they know that they're likely to, ch to change it because, you know, from a manufacturer's point of view, if you get a product into a player's hand straight away, and they win with it, that putter becomes the next thing's best thing since sliced bread. So, yeah. you know, we've seen it at all, you know, at all levels, you know, and it doesn't matter whether it's a club or a grip or a shaft or, you know, as soon as it's visible, you know, then the whole audience wants it. And I remember a conversation I had with a guy who used to run the golf pride, um, Paul Steeles, who now works with KBS and, and Lampkin, actually, um, on the European tour. You know, Paul told me they could not get the multi-compound grip to, to shift at all. And uh, I'm going to say it was a I'm not color. I can't remember the color. I want to say red, but it may have been blue. But, it, you know, Colin Montgomery put the multi-compound. Logic says it would be blue, wouldn't it? A bit of Scottish color. But yeah. He put the multi-compound um, grip onto his clubs, won the tournament that week, and they sold out within a, a day. You know, but they could—they were struggling with that product. But all of a sudden, one player wins, and boom, that that product's gone out there. I think he had that—he had the same effect on the two thumb grip as well at the time, or, or certainly subsequently. Um, you know, so they have—you know—players and TV and you know the the tour coverage. It's it's a very fine balance for a product to be successful. It has to be on the shelf, 
or re- at retail level, it has to be perceived to be successful at all. And, you know, so that's, that's the call the manufacturers are making. And I get completely where they're coming from. Um, you know, we all know how, you know, something that is perceived to be the magic wand, you know, whether it's a putter or driver or a magic training aid, all of a sudden gets a shout out because of a win. And, you know, the manufacturer of that product can't keep it on the shelves. And of course, that's why they made it. So I get it from both angles, but it's, it's a challenge um, from a coaching point of view to, to keep a player settled if they are, you know, being picked on by the, by the manufacturers and say, oh, we'll try this. <laughs> um, you know, and they're like kids in candy shops, you know, that, that they are, a lot of the time, the, they are big kids. You know, they're great, they're, they're, you know, but they're like, like a kid, you know, their favourite sweet this week is, is the most, I hate that. <laughs> you know, we've got kids, you know, we've had, you've got youngster now and, you know, many will resonate with that. You know, listening. You know, it's you know to keep a kid focused on something. You know, is is difficult. It's difficult. You know, um, you, but when they find the favourite toy, you can't get you off them even to wash it. <laughs> um, you know, so it's a little bit like that. You know, I've seen that with players who are trying to get them to change the grip on the club, knowing full well that it will improve their feel, but they don't want to change the winning formula, even though the grip's crusty and split and. It's like, oh, have you got any idea? Look, you know, that's what it feels like. You give them a new one. Yeah, 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 I know, but I, I trust this. You know, but they're getting worse because the grip pressure's changing. You know, it's, it's just crazy little things. And, you know, and we're superstitious as well. You know, that's why, you know, likely Justin will, um, you know, Dustin will, will play the same putter this week because he, or the next tournament he plays because he won with that one. Yeah. Do you want to kind of enlighten the audience any a little bit on what what's going to be coming up on the on the podcast in forthcoming oh, weeks? No, I don't think we can do that, can we? <laughs> no secrets. What's coming? What's coming up? <laughs> uh, we will be talking um, obviously methods and principles. We'll be looking mm-hmm. at putting a short game in depth. We are. We had a great conversation yesterday. Obviously, we're not going to mention any names at this point in time. But one of the, for me, leading. Um, wedge uh, specialist in terms of designing of clubs. We had a conversation with him yesterday. Um, we will be getting those wedges uh, over here in the UK. They're not out yet. And so I am fascinated at looking at those. We're going to look at some equipment, of course. Um, you know, we're going to look at the pitfalls of, of switching and swapping. We're going to look at the, uh, the one-pot program. You know, from both a player and coach's perspective, and what um, you know a player can expect. Um, you know, so yeah, you know, it's anything to do with getting the golf ball in the hole in fewer strokes. So you know, we are going to look at all areas, but we're definitely not going to look at the long game side of things. However, what I will also say is that we will also look at golf balls. You know, you weren't expecting that, but we are. We are going to be looking mm-hmm. at golf balls because of the way that they perform and how they can actually help your short game as well. So, you know, it's, you know, an important part of it for me. And, you know, we'll talk about the brands that I work with and the affiliate programs that we have and you know, all the products that we use in uh, the academy so that folk can understand, they can go and have a look. We'll drop the links available as well, of course. So, you know, we're trying to work with um, as many manufacturers as we can that provide products that we see enhance player performance, but also that we can work with so that um, anybody who's listening can 
gain benefit of those. So whether it'll be free shipping from anywhere in the world or, you know, a discount, um, you know, for any of our listeners, um, you know, so we've, so we've got lots of, of products lined up to, to bring into the mix. And like I say, we'll be talking about the tour uh, events. We're hoping, of course, that they will stay on and, you know, we, the players won't be dropping like flies, but, you know, there will be full fields in the events. And of course, looking towards the, the, the majors, which are completely rescheduled, uh, you know, because mm-hmm. of the situation we're in and see what that's going to do. So, you know, maybe we'll even have a look at the forecasting of, you know, the next tournament coming up. And I think certainly uh, I would like to do a, you know, sort of a, the week before a major. So we're not going to do it every week because it'll interfere with the podcast itself, you know, in terms of where we're at. But we'll forecast what we think is going to happen, the course setups and and the like for the majors, the, the week of the majors. So, you know, um, so I certainly got that coming up. And of course, that's, we've got one of those in only about four weeks time. So uh, with the USPGA, so I'm quite looking forward to that. Um, of course, any Perfect. tales that we have to tell along the way, I'm open to bribes if you don't want me to share. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but now, of course, we're, um, you know, the tales along the way, you know, coaching experiences I've had. I won't name anybody unless they want. Uh, and maybe we'll bring a few other special guests in and uh, whether they're clients or what I'm working with from a teaching point of view um, or a special guest from an equipment point of view or golf industry point of view. And we'll talk about their products and uh, what they're, they're doing in the game of golf. Brilliant. Absolutely awesome, Andy. Great first podcast. Um, absolutely superb. Can't wait for the next one. Um, thank you everybody for listening. Really enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, it's been it's been fun actually. Can't believe you know we've knocked out fifty minutes. Um, you know, and you know, uh, look, anybody who knows me knows that I can talk. I suppose a podcast is a natural place for me to be. If you don't get fed up with my my voice, you'll carry on listening. Um, I do appreciate everybody that will get a chance to listen and to share. Um, but what I will say is, please share with those people that you know and let them share with the people that they know if you don't know anybody you know um but you feel like you know you want to reach out just let us do it we'll know who they are and we'll do the reaching out so that everybody gets a fair hit everybody's going to know know, about what we're doing so if you've got any friends that you know that you think would like to listen to this then feel free to share it with them but uh you know we are you know really passionate about bringing uh one putt coaching into your car into your living room wherever it is right into your ears um you know and so we're going to share that with you over the next uh, coming podcasts you know who knows where this one will end eh? gareth we might be old and gray by the time we're done <laughs> <laughs> I love it. thanks for listening everybody thanks andy thanks.